You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So if you're looking for any type of batteries, whether it's for your truck, your car, your trail cameras, your rangefinder, stop into a local Interstate Batteries retail location. There are thousands upon thousands of them all over the United States. Talk with a battery specialist and get the batteries that you need to go on with your life. Interstate Batteries outrageously dependable. On today's episode, I'm going to start off by going over a little bit of a hunt breakdown for some of our trips to North Dakota. Now, I know the last podcast we talked about North Dakota a little bit too, but it's more of that kind of group atmosphere, uh, overall hunt type thing. Whereas in this uh, episode, I want to go dive into the specifics just a little bit more, talk about the exact settings uh, what the wind was doing and why we chose to hunt certain places the way we did, you know, what lessons we learned, what things we'll, you know, do if and when I go back later this season, and then also answer some of the questions about those new tethered one climbing sticks that I've been using and having a lot of questions on those coming in. And then also talk about just kind of adapting to the changing seasons. You know, we're rolling through the end of September and into early October. And for some people, that's really the start of their seasons. But for other states where they've been open for a couple of weeks or even a month now, certainly kind of an in, a little bit of an in-between time period where you, it seems like you really got to stay on top of the, uh, the active food sources and what those deer are doing exactly right now because it could be changing pretty rapidly here. And then lastly, I want to touch on some of the cell cameras that I've been using over the last, well, some of them the last couple of years and some of them only a couple of weeks. But just kind of wanted to go over some of the features that I do and don't like about uh, the ones that I have been using and testing out. As most of you know, I've been using Onyx for several years for e-scouting and waypoint management. In the field or at home, I can browse aerials and topos, map my routes, draw lines and waypoints, color code points of interest, geotag photos of rubs, or even what a specific tree I intend on hunting looks like, so that I can find it in the dark, say for example. Furthermore, I can download maps for offline use, and of course browse public and private land boundaries. Use the code DIY for a discount on an Onyx hunt membership. Alright, so... On the North Dakota hunt, if you guys remember from last year, tried a few different hunts on field edges and 
you know, just trying to find what I could see for tracks and agriculture, trying to figure out which fields were hot, which ones weren't. Whereas this trip, it seemed like for the most part, we stayed in a very particular type of habitat. And that was based a little bit on that first day's worth of scouting where I really just went through and picked out, you know, three basic different spots that I had looked at on the map, some of which I had checked out with Shane, some of which we really hadn't. But I really wanted to dig into that habitat type a little bit more, and that was, I guess, loosely or greatly described as river bottom. Um, didn't really do much of that at all on the first trip out there. First trip was mostly, like I said, just the fields and, and kind of the bigger woodlot type of areas. But the river bottoms, there's there's definitely some allure to it from the standpoint that you can really easily try and target where exactly those deer are bedding just by looking at a map. Kind of similar to how you can look at a map of like a cattail marsh and be able to pick out, okay, I think deer are going to bed here, 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 and just knock out a whole bunch of spots on the list. And then you can build a really easy you know, map to go and scout it or something like that and really be efficient. Same kind of thing in river bottom where you can look at a map and by looking at the pattern of the oxbows, the inner and the outer bends, and then also the relationship to fields, you can kind of look at it and say, I think deer are going to bed here, 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 etc." And then you can also look at not only just kind of that general pattern, but also the vegetation. Say there's tall trees here. Maybe these are, you know, big cottonwoods or something. This looks like more just kind of like, you know, lowland brush. And you can start to piece together, okay, based on not only the way that the river lays out, but also this style of vegetation. I think deer might be bedding here, here, and here. And just looking at the fields surrounding it that time of year anyway, you might be able to say, okay, I think the deer are going to feed in these particular locations. And of course, looking at the map, looking at Onyx, you might not be able to tell what's growing in those fields. It might be, you know, soybeans, it might be picked wheat, it might be, you know, beets, it might be corn, whatever. So that's one of the reasons it was really important to go in there and actually check some of those field edges for sign when we went in. Uh, but basically the strategy was check food in relation to some of that river bottom bedding that we were assuming was there. And then when we saw the sign, then we dive back into those places and actually hunt them. And for people that are more familiar, you kind of know what wind directions are kind of textbook for deer to bed and oxbows. But for those who don't, essentially the thought process is a deer will bed on an oxbow when the wind is blowing from that mainland down out across the peninsula and out across the river. And the theory behind that is a deer will be able to go out and bed on that oxbow and they can sit right on the tip of it and they can smell anything that comes down that oxbow. And then they can basically be able to escape anywhere across that open river to get to safety on the other side. Of course, it depends on how steep the banks are and how deep the river is and things like that. But that's just kind of the, and one thing that we learned out there, and it's an important thing to keep in mind is that there are always going to be variations to the rule depending on the specifics. And in some of the cases, the specifics were that the oxbows or the, you know, inside bends of those rivers were large in relation to kind of that textbook scenario where you might have one or, you know, two deer bedding on a particular bend in the river. Some of these things are big. Like if you take a, draw a little polygon and on X, you might find like an outside bend of a river and that little peninsula that it creates might be 20 acres. That's a pretty large uh, amount of land, especially if you look at it and it's got a bunch of, you know, that lowland brush on it, lots of trees, lots of just diverse cover and habitat. That type of an area can support a lot of deer, which we quickly found out out there. The first oxbow that we hunted on the, 
the day one. And I, I mean, I call it an oxbow, but it's really, uh, it, you should think of it as more of like a greater land peninsula because it was a little bit larger. It, it was large enough that I wouldn't be surprised if there was, you know, 20, 30 plus deer out there on that particular thing. You couldn't see many of them. You could only see a certain number at any given time just because of how thick it was and how much of that low lying brush there was and how much of the grass and weeds and all that kind of stuff early season. But the point being this type of an area, think of it as like a big bedding area, as opposed to just a really pinpoint type location. You know, I kind of think of it in the same terms of if you have a wind specific bedding location in like a, a marsh or something, and you know that the deer like to bed in this, this certain area, maybe from one parking lot, you have a bunch of spots that are all like great north wind spots, but not like any great south wind spots. Well, what happens when all of a sudden you get that south wind? Do those deer go and move two miles to get to areas that are more secure, uh, you know, south wind spots? Or do they just readjust their bedding slightly to take advantage of that certain wind direction within the area that they're already comfortable in? And usually the answer is the latter. And I think that's kind of the case here too with the way that these deer are bedding in these, these oxbows was that they're still going to be in that same area, that same greater bedding area, their exact bedding locations, which a lot of them we couldn't confirm just because we didn't want to dive right in and kick those deer up. A lot of those exact locations, they might be varying a little bit based on the wind direction, but they're not just getting up and and moving to a, a whole different region of that river bottom system. They're sticking with the area that they're comfortable with and that they have a lot of browse and food and all that sort of stuff. And the way that we kind of confirmed that on day one before even getting out there and doing a hunt was when we went into this area, we say, okay, based on textbook parameters, the wind is not blowing down the oxbow. It's actually the opposite. The wind would be blowing, say, from the river up onto that peninsula of land and then all the way through that bedding area and then, you know, towards the food. So if you'd imagine a deer would get up and walk to the food from that bedding location, the wind would actually be at their back. So going into it, it's like, eh, you know, maybe, maybe not that the deer might want to actually use that. But what we found and what was kind of the confirmation here was that because we had a rainfall the day before, it was basically like a reset on all the fresh tracks. So we knew that any tracks that we saw on any of those field edges or anywhere else were going to be made within that like last 12 hour period. And so when we got to some of those field edges, it was like, man, this place is lit up a deer sign, but we had the same wind direction yesterday. We had the same wind direction last night as we have now. So even though it's not textbook, it's likely that the deer are still back. They're just still using it. And it's just that maybe, you know, this area is so big that they, they could be adjusting slightly what they're doing. But that said, they're not going to just, you know, make a huge move. At least that much was apparent based on the sign that we saw just kind of checking that field the first day. And that gave us the confidence to go in there and, you know, like you guys saw in the videos that first day, we saw three bucks that were, you know, I, I would have had a tough time passing on, on some of those on an out of state, you know, four day trip. I think they were a little bit, you know, younger deer, probably, you know, two and a half year old, maybe three and a half. My guess off just off the cuff was like two and a half. Uh, one of them was, you know, probably close to, you know, 16, 17 inches wide, um, and a bunch of does. And so, again, that combined with like the number of deer back there, it's like, man, we can probably get away with hunting this wind direction that's safe for us and less so for the deer and just make it a setup in such a way that we're backed up pretty much as close to the river as we feel comfortable getting so that the wind that is there, it's blowing our scent, if anything, 
close to the actual open river and getting it out across that open space where deer aren't going to walk. That was kind of the idea going in is you, you get these, these river bending systems and you might expect that the deer are bedding on those oxbows or those peninsulas, but then you're only hunting, not all the way back, but just maybe like halfway there, but you're kind of skirting the river edge on the downwind side as much as possible so that you can try and prevent deer from getting downwind of you. Well, the reality of the situation is because there's so much land there that even if you were to, you know, basically set up right on that river edge, you might get some movement there, but you're also oftentimes, you know, really limiting the amount of space that you can cover and the amount of space that you can see, especially how thick the canopy is during that opening week of September. You know, you really have to pick and choose how you want to set up. Do you want to set up so that you can observe stuff or do you want to set up so that you're covering one trail, maybe two trails in the woods and you hope that deer are going to walk on those trails because if they don't you're not going to see anything because it's just too thick otherwise those are kind of the decisions you have to make and that first day we set up right on kind of the not the edge of the river but basically the edge of the thick and the open to where we could see out in some of that open and look over some of that tall grass and brush and stuff like that but we still were able to have one or two shooting lanes out into the woods and there was still another 50 yards at least beyond that before you got to the river edge. So there's a very good likelihood that deer could get downwind of us, but just based on the way that the, the trails were set up and the tracks and whatnot, it seemed like it was less likely. Uh, so again, that's something you can really only pick out when you're actually in there and you're actually on the ground, looking at the tracks, looking at the trails, trying to, you know, look back and forth at the map compared to what you're seeing on the ground and just really try and form a big picture of what's going on. And you have to make compromises. I think a lot of times, cause you just, you simply can't do everything. You can't cover everything, especially when you have to make those decisions between, do you want a more observation type of sit, or do you want a really pinpoint type of sit with less opportunity to glass? And man, I'll tell you what, I like those setups where you're just tucked in there and you got one or two trails to shoot at. It gives you confidence that that's going to be the one that the deer feel most secure on. The other thing to remember too, on that early season hunt is that those deer really haven't been pressured much at that time of the year. And they probably, you know, could still, they're still on their summer patterns and they could feel, feel very comfortable essentially walking out into some of those more open areas. And even some of those more open areas are not super open. They're never more than a bound or two away from getting into some of that thick, low uh, lying brush. So first day we saw the deer. Okay. Good confirmation. Second day, wind direction switched, and so we went to a totally different area. Uh, but we wanted to come back to that area when we had the same wind direction, which was day three. So day three, we came back in there, same wind direction. And what was interesting was on each of these two hunts, we did bump deer out, but they were in slightly different locations. You know, day one, we walked through some of that marsh grass, as you guys saw in the video, and we kicked up a, a fairly decent you know, buck that was still in velvet. And the place that he was betting, it's like, man, that was perfect for him where he had the wind kind of at his back, but he could still observe us coming in. It's just kind of that textbook spot where you would never pick it out just looking at a map. But once you saw it, it made a lot of sense. So then the third day when we walked back in there, we, we basically just almost like stalked up to the point where he was better just in case he was in that still, you know, same location. And he was not, um, you know, we came up there and, and just glassed real slowly and, he definitely wasn't in that same location. We kept going further and further. And when we got pretty close to where we ended up setting up, we kicked out another doe and, and a buck. And man, I just couldn't quite tell for sure because the grass was so thick, but it could have been the same deer. 
you know, bet it a couple hundred yards in a different location, even on that same wind. So, you know, it's, it's tough to say for sure that the point is there's a lot of potential opportunities where those, those deer could bet, especially on some of those bigger oxbows, I think. Smaller oxbows might be a totally different story. There might be one specific location where it just makes sense. They might only be betting there with the wind, you know, coming from the mainland, blowing down the peninsula. Um, but in this particular location, in this type of scenario, it definitely didn't seem to be the case. And it's not like we saw any, you know, big five and a half year old bucks or anything like that. So those could be a different scenario as well, where maybe they are following the textbook more so than what we saw. Um, you know, I think the biggest deer we jumped was probably like a legit, you know, good three and a half year old, you know, really solid buck for, for public land. And really the only thing that we did different on day three is we just pushed a little bit further. We looked at the map and said, okay, we saw these deer. This is where we think they came out of the taller timber and walked out into that open grass and, and, uh, and brush. And so we just kind of pushed up slowly into that area, super windy. So it covered a lot of our entry noise and we were able to get right up in there and set up really quietly. And inside that tree canopy, it was a lot more open, um, to where, yeah, there wasn't a lot of light getting to the ground, but you could see a solid 30 yards in every direction around the tree, which is plenty for, you know, what Sam was going to be able to, to take a shot at. So then those deer came in, she shot the doe a little bit after she shot the doe that, um, buck came in that we had on video and it was the wider one where he's, you know, a little bit outside the ears, uh, but still look kind of, you know, just thin overall in the rack. And I think it was probably one of the deer, one of those three bucks that we saw on the first day. So that just goes to show that, you know, in that particular scenario, just by making a slight movement and doing that, you know, essentially observation on the first set, even though it wasn't intentional necessarily seeing where those deer were moving and then going back in on the next hunt in that area, picking a spot where we thought they were going to come out. It seemed to pretty, like we pretty much just pinpointed it, right? If we were after that specific deer, for example, we would have gotten a shot at him. Um, as is, you know, he, he stopped at kind of 25 yards. Um, he started coming in a little bit closer and then, you know, I was, you know, turning around and talking to Sam in the tree and, you know, whispering real loud and making some movement and stuff and getting the camera. So I think he eventually saw some of that movement and caught a glimpse of us. Um, but had we been still ready to hunt at that point, I think he, he may have, you know, continue to come in. So what may we have done differently knowing what we know now? Probably not a ton, although I would say that it would be helpful, I think, in future years to number one, do a spring scouting trip and just really pick apart some of those river bottom areas, if that ends up being the same type of habitat that we choose to focus on in the future, and just really try and pick apart and see if we can figure out which ones are carrying a lot of deer. I'm sure some are, you know, holding a lot more deer than others. Obviously the one that we found had a, quite a bit of deer in it. And I'm sure that's not the case everywhere, but just looking at how some of the ones set up, uh, on the maps, you can tell that some have better pinch points than others. Some have more, what looks like bedding cover than others. Some have more fields than others around it. But until I think you get boots on the ground and really confirm, you might find that one spot has, you know, seven ladder stands or, uh, you know, big box blinds set up on the fields. And, uh, there's, you know, a good opportunity that a lot of people are in the family hunt that land. And there might be spots where it's like, it doesn't look like anybody's hunted there for forever, you know? And that's really something you can't really tell just by looking at a map, unless you happen to see a box blind out in the field and just a little white dot on the aerial. The other thing that I think would be helpful is 
taking even more time ahead of the trip to do spot checking and glassing. And one of the challenges it seems like out there is that you're, you generally got a pretty low likelihood, I think, of being able to glass a lot of deer and a lot of good deer from the road. It just seems like they're very road shy out there in general. But if you get off the road, then you're able to see oftentimes more deer in open areas where you can glass them. So it's almost like to a certain extent, if you are going in to do a glassing session, you're kind of all in for that evening um, in, in terms of you're being set up and you're glassing a specific area and that's all you're going to be able to glass. So if you end up not seeing anything, it might feel like a wasted trip, but you're also knocking that uh, place off the off the map, so to speak, and, and focusing on stuff that might still be good. So if you had ideally like, you know, if you lived there and had a couple of weeks to go out there and glass every night in different spots, I think you could get a really good idea of what's in the area and what is a place you really want to spend a lot of time focusing on, maybe even find a deer to, to try and pattern. Whereas if you just go in there maybe a day or two before, you're kind of limiting your options into what you can see on the ground when you go in and, and spot check versus what you can glass. So more time ahead of the trip would be great. I don't know how feasible it is just in terms of, you know, your trip can only be so long and you only have so much PTO, but that would definitely be something that would be helpful for people who want to do a trip like that, but may not, uh, and may have more time to be able to spend out there and want to know just like, what are some of the best things they can do? Another thing that could be helpful is if you have a couple spots that you do have somewhat of, you know, confidence in that they could be good, you know, just throwing out a couple cameras. It didn't really seem like from the guys out there who were running cameras, we didn't have any this trip, but for the guys that did, it didn't seem like it made much of an impact or a difference on what they were seeing during the days. You know, they might go out and drop a couple cameras and go out and check them. Uh, or maybe it was a cell camera and they're, you know, able to get pictures sent back. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, now we have an idea of what's in the area and they might have, you know, three different spots. Then you can get Intel on in one day's worth of time, as opposed to glassing, like I mentioned, where you're kind of all in if you're glassing a spot that's a little bit off the road. So that's definitely a pretty good and viable option as well. I may go back up either sometime in October, maybe later in October, potentially late season, although it can get brutally cold and a lot of snow and just hard to travel in general. Uh, so too much snow might be a detractor just from the standpoint of the road situation. Don't want to get stuck out there. Uh, but the opportunity from what it sounds like, if you can find an area that has good food sources late season can be phenomenal because they really yard up in those types of areas where there is food. The biggest thing that would keep me from going back would just be the other trips that I have going on and the other tags, right? I got a Wisconsin tag, Minnesota tag, and the rut is going to be very heavily dominated by South Dakota and Missouri. So even though I'd like to go back there during the rut, and I think there's some rut funnels that we found up there that are just should be phenomenal. I don't realistically know if I'll be able to get back up there during the rut. So it'll be one of those go up there late October, um, and try and get on a deer type of things if I'm able to do it. But then again, I have to have confidence that I'm just not on something here in Wisconsin or, or Minnesota, or, you know, just really want the, to go back and fill that out of state tag. So we'll see. It's not set in stone yet by any means, but it's definitely something that's on my mind. One of the most common questions that I got surrounding the trip and the videos from the trip, in addition to Sam's broadhead, which was a shoot shooting the Valkyrie system, were about the new tethered one climbing sticks. So these climbing sticks, they're about 17 inches step spacing, uh, just a hair under one pound, uh, like 15.9 ounces, 
with the included attachment system. So with the rope and basically they are titanium tubes with standoffs that are one piece step standoffs. And they have kind of the same or similar type of geometry to like the, you know, the predator platform you have like those wings that kind of kick out in the corners or like the tie fighter stick that you saw in my one stick climbing video where the step and the standoff are all kind of, you know, connected and you have a, a piece of aluminum that kind of spans the gap between those. So it gives you a little bit more overall standing room and a little bit more surface area to stand on, on the step. So between the uh, machining of the aluminum steps and the bond to the actual t- uh, titanium tube itself, it's a, it's a two-step bond, at least on the, the sticks we have now, it's a, an adhesive bond to actually get the the steps originally on there. And then, uh, there's also a little pin that is used as just kind of like a backup for right now. And the attachment method for the stick, instead of having like a, a cam strap or daisy chains or anything like that, there's a, a little cleat on the stick and the cleat is designed to be used with a specific size of amp steel rope. It's a thinner amp steel rope and you throw that thing around the tree and then you basically just work it back into the cleat, like as if you were, you know, tying up a boat, um, on the, on the end of a dock. So if you look at a picture, you'll see that the shape is a little bit different from what you would assume with a boat cleat, but effectively you're doing the same type of thing. And that means that when you're using the Amsteel and in, in comparison to how you would usually have to use it with like a rope mod, typically you have to feed the tag end of the rope underneath itself to get that good cinch. But because the cleat itself is actually performing the cinching operation, you don't have to do that. So you just basically throw the rope around the tree and then wrap it around the cleat and you're done. Uh, so it's a little bit quicker. It's a little bit easier. There's a little bit less fiddle factor associated with it. And the sticks don't have any moving parts. So you're able to, you know, basically just throw them up on the tree and between the six points of contact or the six, you know, teeth on each standoff, you're able to find a set of at least two uh, on each one. So you got at minimum four points of contact at all times when those seats go ahead and stick into the, the bark and seat down. And they've been pretty stable. Uh, I haven't had any concerns with them, you know, potentially want to kick out or anything like that. The way that the steps stack together is that there's a little, a receiver and, and kind of a pin uh, on both the top and the bottom of the steps. So you take two sticks, you offset them a little bit, and then you route the, the pins into the, the holes and there's little O-rings so that you get a nice, smooth, quiet, um, insertion of those pins into the holes and those sticks just nest together kind of, you know, top down. So when you have those things stacked together, then you can stack as many as you want. They really, the, the O-ring has enough friction that they, they don't rattle and they don't come apart. So that's where you can go ahead and just take that whole stack then and just lash it onto your pack. The way I was carrying them out in North Dakota is I was taking the Sitka tool bucket pack and I would put my predator platform inside the pack along with any other, you know, essentials. And then I would close the pack up and because that pack has two compression straps plus kind of a bow hanging strap at the top. So three total straps, I would just use those to hold the sticks on with the standoffs facing out behind me and was able to cinch those straps down and get a really tight overall package to where I could, you know, crawl under stuff, walk in and around stuff and not have those things really catch on anything. So that was, that was nice. Um, I'm in the past, I've always been kind of a longer climbing stick guy. The ones that I made were 24 inches overall length, which gives you like a 22 inch step spacing. So the step spacing here is about five inches shorter than what I'm used to over the last couple of years. And originally I was thinking that might be an issue, but it seems like 
if you, if you're using say three sticks, for example, just from the length of the steps, I would be losing, you know, about a foot, like 15 inches from what I would be used to otherwise using. That said, when I use an aider system, like a, a carry as you go aider or a movable aider, then I'm not just limited by how long the, the steps are or the step spacing is. I'm actually just limited by how high I can reach that top step up on the tree. So if I'm able to take my climbing stick, whether it was a long climbing stick or a short climbing stick and get that top step to like eight feet or so on the ground level, and then I'm able to use that carry as you go aider and just repeat as I go up, then regardless of the stick length, I'm able to still get up to 24 feet if I were wanting to get that high. Uh, now that, that isn't always the case and on really wonky trees that doesn't work quite as well just because the the aiders you know are a little bit less stable than just using climbing sticks in and of themselves uh, but the 17 inch step spacing seems to be long enough for me to where it's not awkward when i'm standing on them and using them and that's kind of what ends up being the biggest thing right if you could have a 12 inch long climbing stick with that type of a method it would still work and you'd be able to get just as high. It would just be that when you're actually climbing up onto the stick portion itself, if it, the stick was super short, you'd be kind of cramped feeling because your hand is, ends up being so close to your feet as you're climbing. And it seems like with the step spacing here, it isn't quite as much of an issue. It also seems like with double steps, it's less of an issue having a little bit shorter stick. The sticks that I had that really just gave me the biggest issues with a short overall length were like back in the day when I was using the lone wolf minis because they were really short. And because they also had the alternating steps, those for me were always kind of a, an awkward, uh, positioning for climbing just because I was always really, um, you know, kind of cramped up and my feet were always so close to my hands and I was hanging off the tree quite a bit because of it. But it seems like that isn't too much of an issue here. So noise, not that much of an issue. I've taken the tubing and I've wrapped stealth steps around them. Um, since the hunt, I've gone ahead and added some additional style strips to the outer rims of the machined aluminum standoffs and steps. So I, I really don't have yet any complaints. Um, granted these, uh, sticks are kind of you know, more final prototypes. So there may still be a couple of changes as they're working on getting the, the actual production units out and making those available for sale. But so far, I mean, I, I gotta say, I really like them. So after talking about the sticks, I'll just briefly go over some of the things that we're seeing and some of the things that we're learning locally here in Minnesota and Wisconsin. We've thrown a couple hunts at, in both States between myself and Sam, and we've gotten on deer really almost every hunt. Uh, the thing we haven't gotten on yet is like an older buck and, and they're a little bit more few and far between. So that's, there's not really a huge surprise there, uh, especially when we're not able to, to do a lot of, uh, inventorying type of stuff when we're out of state. Um, so I've been, using more and more trail cameras to try and help out with that, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But what we're seeing in Minnesota is that the places that we're hunting, the oak trees are not dropping the kind of acorns that there were last year. And we're seeing some of the white oaks that we've scouted, some of the bur oaks and, and red oaks. And a lot of times these types of trees are in the same areas. And we're only seeing oftentimes a few acorn caps on the ground not much in the trees and even the quantity of the caps in the ground is not all that extreme, uh, which, which tends to mean, I think number one, it's a little bit lighter acorn crop overall in the places that we're used to hunting. 
And number two, it seems like we have pretty much entirely missed out on the, the white oak acorn dropping. The, the ones that we are seeing dropping occasionally are, it looks like red oaks. So we keep holding out hope that eventually we're going to run over that one, you know, kind of late bloomer white oak tree that's just, you know, dropping a ton of acorns and the deer are just all over it. But what we're seeing is there's still deer in areas where there's really light acorns and they're just feeding more and more on browse more than anything. I'm sure had the season open a week earlier, we'd probably be able to get on some of those uh, acorn uh, feed trees as they were dropping. But with a lot of those things being dried up and eaten up, the deer that we are seeing, you know, they're just doing their normal deer browsing stuff where they're, you know, getting up out of their beds and they're walking 20 yards and then they're feeding for 10 minutes and then they go and walk over to another tree and eat some more leaves and then they go walk over and eat some more grass or whatever they're going to, you know, do. But then, um, like opening day, for example, in Minnesota, we had three bucks that we ended up seeing get up out of a bedding area that was just adjacent to the Oak Island that we were on. The Oak Island we were on was pretty open understory, just real big, you know, tall trees, lots of oaks, um, t- you know, real thick canopy. But the place that you were betting on was a little bit thicker and, you know, not that many oaks, maybe like one or two. And we were seeing deer in that bedding area just kind of milling around like an hour before dark. And it wasn't until like the last like 10 minutes of daylight where they finally came out of that, you know, bedding area and walked over across the open marsh to get to the oak island that we're on. And then we had some of those bucks uh, that were, you know, a little bit younger hanging around for quite a bit. We actually had to, to kick them out as we got down. Cause they were just like one of them bedded down 15 yards away from our tree in the dark. Uh, so we just had to get down at that point. But the point being is we're still holding out hope that there might be some, you know, semblance of strong acorns that are still dropping somewhere. And we're covering a lot of miles on every hunt trying to find that thing. But even while we're not able to find that yet, we're still just basically picking the best that we can in terms of the deer sign that we do see. In some of the areas that we've ended up setting up, there's been some fresh deer sign, but not what I would consider heavy. And that might just mean that the deer are more spread out. They don't have to walk as far to get to some of those browse food sources. And it may just be one of those things where until the, we get later into October and more of those grasses and things start to die off more and these become less desirable food sources, that might be, okay, now we can start to see more deer moving further distances instead of just being able to eat a smorgasbord right next to their beds. On um, Wisconsin's opening day, it was actually a little bit better. That was a week prior to the Minnesota opener. And we were able to get into an area in what I would kind of classify as bigger woods type of area of, you know, more northern Wisconsin. Still some agriculture around, so it's not, you know, pure, pure big woods and wolf country and stuff like that. But it's, it's getting towards that area. And a lot of logging that was going on. And we were able to walk past some of that stuff and get to the standing timber that was still there and just and kind of walk on some of the logging roads back there, able to find where there were fresh deer tracks, where there were uh, oak trees that were dropping, be able to see what kind they were. And it seemed like, again, there, there wasn't really much for white or bur oaks that were dropping. The stuff that was dropping was red oaks. And we even came around one bend and there was deer feeding, you know, two and a half hours before dark, right in the middle of the logging road on red oak acorns. And so we ended up setting up right there after kicking those deer off and had a, a couple more does that we ended up seeing on stand come through. But what it seems like is that the amount of buck sign out in that area is, is very low in the areas that we've scouted and found historical buck sign. You know, I, I scouted this place in 
uh, March or April, I can't remember exactly which, but able to find, you know, historical sign where it's like, man, this place is just torn up. There's a lot of big rubs. There's scrapes all over the place. You know, is this rut sign? Is some of this in kind of a core area where it might be laid down earlier? And from what it seems like, a lot of that sign must be getting laid down, you know, later in October, uh, getting closer to the rut because it seems like the freshest buck sign they were able to see is still closer to um, the some of the crop fields and in some of the logging areas that are now grown up. You know, there's several years past being cut and you have some of those saplings that are, you know, 10 feet high or whatever. That seems to be where, you know, the rubs from this year are some of the more, you know, fresh tracks and droppings and things like that. But in some of those areas where the historical rut sign was, there's still a lot of does. Um, in fact, I did something that I haven't done, you know, really much in the past that I can remember with just making a mock scrape in an area that I found a lot of rut sign last year. And I just, you know, made the scrape, uh, hung a, a big, you know, licking branch with a, a ton of different little offshoots off of it, made it look like a nice, good scrape, made a fake rub and put a, a cell cam next to it and just kind of, you know, hoping to monitor it throughout the month of October and see when that actually starts to turn over and become good and have, you know, some good bucks move into the area. And I mean, even 12 hours after I put that mock scrape up, I had does coming in and start, you know, sniffing at it and pawing at it and whatever. So that indicates to me that, okay, there's, there's still these bucks here somewhere, but they're not quite fully in that, you know, locale quite yet. Um, the pictures that I am getting of deer, they're still closer to the crop fields. And I'm sure that's going to change. And it's probably just going to be a, a matter of number one, it's going to change as the food changes. And as some of the, the browse and stuff starts to, you know, starts to die off as we get a little bit later in October, I think that's going to be kind of the, the key driver of the shift. But then of course, too, as it gets closer to the rut, they're going to, you know, slide a little bit closer to where those does are at right now. Even the deer that I kicked up, I, I walked seven miles, uh, going out to place a couple new cameras on Saturday. And the only deer that I kicked up were does. So that just, again, is kind of reinforcing. Um, they just have so much to eat right now. And in addition to the crops, which are a long ways off of the public, there's just browse absolutely everywhere. So they really can eat whatever they want. And even if the acorn crop is a little bit lower this year, there's still definitely no shortage of food. So I'll continue to scout that place, continue to keep eyes on it through the trail cameras and just, you know, wait for the right time to go back in. I want to try and keep, um, as much out of it as I can after getting at least the initial eyes on the ground that I'm going to be hunting. So in a place like that, typically what I do from a trail camera perspective is, you know, it's a long ways from my house. A lot of times what I do in the past is I would just hang out these trail cameras and either rut funnels around scrapes and not really check them until I would go back to scout the following year in the spring and just kind of collect those cameras and then look at the cards and see when those areas got the most activity, what kind of deer were running around and just use that information for the following year. But with, you know, cell cams becoming more and more of a thing, it's basically allowing me to do the same type of thing where I did before where I'm setting the camera once. I'm just never going back in and checking it throughout the rest of the season. The only difference is now I'm able to see the stuff as it comes up real time, as opposed to having to wait until the season is, you know, totally over. So that's a huge advantage. And I can see how, you know, some people would have, would have issues from that, from just like a, an ethics standpoint, you know, is it too much information, um, versus, you know, what we were able to do before. So I'm not going to dive too deep into that, but just talk about some of the things that I'm, I'm seeing right now, you know, 
a big thing too, in addition to seeing what deer are there and when like the shift is going to happen to where there's more bucks starting to come back into these areas where I expect them to be later in October, I'm able to see hunting pressure as well. Like some of the trails that I have the camera set up over, I have these cameras just really tucked in and I'm able to see like, for example, a couple fall turkey hunters, a guy walked in, you know, shotgun and his, and his dog. Uh, clearly wasn't duck hunting, had a turkey vest on. Another guy, kind of the same thing, wearing like khakis and holding a shotgun. No blaze orange for, for either of them. So I have to assume that they're uh, turkey hunters. You know, some of these old access trails and logging roads, they're not mud anymore. They're all grown up with grass and you can see trails, but you can't see tracks in them, uh, so to speak. So like you wouldn't be able to go through and walk this place and be able to say like, oh yeah, there's looks like a couple guys walk through here and a dog. Like you can just see a trail. Um, that's about as much detail as you can get unless you had a really fresh rain. <clears throat> excuse me, or you had dew on the ground or some other type of way that you're able to see more precisely what type of print is left in the grass. But most of the time you don't have those ideal conditions. And so having that real time data helps me know like, okay, there's people back here. So that's going to influence potentially how I would, you know, hunt that area. Uh, what wind direction were these guys walking through? If there's deer bedding where I assume they're going to be bedding right here, they're going to smell those people, right? You start to build, you know, pieces of the puzzle together and that is just a massive piece of information that I wouldn't otherwise be able to get. So of the trail cameras that I'm running right now, and specifically the cell cams, I'll, I'll just give a, a quick overview and I'll be doing videos that are a lot more detailed on these cameras as well. But the ones that I have deployed right now and I'm able to get info on, uh, number one, I have a few of the Exodus renders out in the field. I have a few of the Tacticam reveals that I just bought and have out in the field. I have a couple different kinds of spy points, the link darks, as well as the cell links. And I have a couple of each. So that gives me a little bit more of a, at least a general feeling for what the re reliability is. You know, it's like with cell cams in general, there's a lot more things that could go wrong. And if you're just buying one camera and kind of evaluating it, you might not know that like one out of every four cameras has issues, right? And you might just think like, oh, this is the you know best thing in the world. I don't have any issues with it. Whereas you go on like a, a review thread or a Facebook thread or whatever, and like two out of every three guys like this thing's junk. So what I've seen so far is that the, I guess I'll go from, you know, what I like the least to what I like the most, the cell links, the concept is great, but there's a couple big downsides to it. Number one, you can't adjust the settings from the app. You have to adjust the settings on the camera before you leave the field. And if you have a day where it's just like super windy or whatever, you start getting a lot of false triggers and nothing you can do about it. Also, you're doubling up on the batteries. You're running batteries for both your camera and that cell link. And if you're running lithiums like I am, that becomes, you know, pretty expensive if you're all of a sudden buying 16 lithium batteries that you're going to have to replace. Now, they do make rechargeable packs, so that's something that would be a little bit better value in the long run. Uh, I also had issues with some of them just kind of getting set up. I have one in the field right now that hasn't sent me basically a single picture. Uh, I got it set up. It seemed to be working all right. Get out in the field. And it's one of those things where it's, you know, several hours from your house, you got limited time left in the day to do everything you need to do. And after like 45 minutes of messing around with this thing, trying to get it to send photos with, you know, good reception, I just said, screw it. And hopefully it's, you know, at least saving the, uh, pictures on the, the SD card. And I come back at the end of the year and, and get the, uh, the information that way, as if it were a normal trail camera. I also had an instance where it wasn't even saving pictures to the card. And in that case, I did a full re-format uh, of the card, and that seemed to help it. But, like, once it's out in the field, there's not much not much you can do. 
uh, if these things were closer to my house, I could, you know, fix that and make sure it was, you know, kind of good to go before I, I leave, but I just don't have the time. Um, so it's basically like I, I, I go out and I set it out and it, it should work and it, it has to work. And if it doesn't work, then there's not much I can do about it. And so reliability for me ends up being a, a pretty critical thing because all my cell cameras are out of state. I don't have any in the state of Minnesota because, um, trail cameras in general in the places I hunt, you're not allowed to leave them overnight. So all the stuff I have is a long drive. I put them way back, you know, deep in, it's just not convenient to go back and, and recheck them. Um, unless I happen to go in for a hunt and walk past one of them. So that being said, I think if you have a bunch of regular cameras, that cell link may make sense, but I think you're going to end up spending more in the long run than just buying a cheaper cell camera because of the battery, uh, per, the battery portion of it. Uh, the link darks from spy point, I've had some issues with where they will work just fine. And then like all of a sudden, all the nighttime pictures will be totally black as if the IR just isn't working. And then I'll go out and like take it from the field and go like set it out somewhere else. And it's working fine again. Um, I've had a couple instances like that, or it might take eight hours to, to send a, a photo, even when the reception is really great. I've, they've just been a little bit less reliable for me. I've had some instances where they work just fine and other instances where they just, I, I want to, you know, I want to give up on them completely for the Exodus renders. Those ones have been pretty reliable for me. They're basically like a lift two camera plus cellular capabilities. And the thing I like about them is that the capabilities that you have on the app to be able to change things is pretty good, right? You can get the HD photos. If you want them, you can adjust every setting that you could want to set or change on the app. Like for example, if it's, uh, if I set the camera and it looks like it's in a good you know, spot, not going to get any false triggers. And all of a sudden we get like a day with 30 mile an hour winds and the, the limbs are blowing all over the place. And I've started getting a false trigger, you know, like every few minutes I can go in and adjust the time that that camera's active. I can adjust the sensitivity. I can, um, make it take like one shot burst instead of three. I can, I can make those changes and then not have it use up a whole bunch of my data. Whereas like with the case of the cell link, you couldn't do that. Uh, so that's a nice feature about the the renders that I like. The image quality seems to be pretty good. You can do videos on it and transmit those videos, which is something you can't do with a lot of cell cameras. They charge based on like the amount of data that you want to use as opposed to like the number of pictures. So that gives you a little bit more flexibility in terms of what you want to actually use that camera for and get information on. Now, the only downside to the renders that I've uh, noticed is just that they're more expensive, right? Some of these cameras coming out now, there's, there's a lot of them on the market now that are under 200 bucks for a cell camera and the render still sits at 335 as the normal price. But the, the thing to keep in mind too, is that they do have that, um, that replacement plan if, you know, for theft or damage or, or things like that, which obviously the other manufacturers don't offer. So that's something to keep in mind in terms of that overall price too. But I haven't had any issues with the three that I have um, out in the field right now. And then the last one that I have info on, and this one's, I guess, just more recent info is the, the tagged cam reveals. I bought a couple of those and have put them out. And one of the things that I like about the reveal is that it's really easy to, and quick to set up in the field. Um, probably one of the easiest overall setup processes between out of the box to actually getting it to send pictures to your phone. And out of the, the few that I've, I've bought in, everyone's been exactly the same. You put the batteries in, you put the card in, you turn the thing on, you put the QR code, you, you know, add it to the app. It takes like a minute to register and then it's ready to use. You get it set up in the field. You hit the okay button. It sends you 
a picture, it goes to your phone, then you know it's working. And for the ones I've set out, it's been like instant to where I have, if I have a you know decent enough cell service, it just hasn't been an issue at all, but trying to get things to transmit right away, then you close it and then you're able to, to use it and collect the information. So the ease of use, I would say is, is definitely pretty good for the, the reveals. Um, one thing I don't like about it is that you have a little bit fewer options, right? You can't transmit videos. You can't switch it from photo to video on the app right now. So like, let's say I put it on a scrape and I had it set on photo mode and I'm like, man, you know why? I, I wish I would have put this on video mode. You can't do that through the app right now. The other thing you can't do is have it transmit all of your burst shots. If you have it set to say like a three shot burst, it's only going to send the second picture of that burst. So it's like, you would think that based on whatever the data plan is, they would allow you to just get more pictures and then they would just charge you more for it. But it seems like they kind of limit you and say, no, we're only going to transmit uh, lesser data so that you're using less data. But it's like, well, you know, what if I want more data? <laughs> what if I want all three of those pictures in the burst? What if I want to transmit videos? You don't have those options. That's probably the, the biggest downside so far that I've, I've seen from them. And just kind of like a side note to a lot of the solar panels that have the external batteries, like there's um, the Exodus has their uh, solar panel battery system. Um, there's a cheap one from HME that I'm not a huge fan of uh, because you can't charge it outside of using the solar panel. And it takes like almost a week to charge it out in the, the bright sunlight before you can actually deploy it in the field or before you'd want to deploy it in the field. Whereas the excess one, you can just plug it into the wall and it's charged in a couple hours. But essentially the the sizing of the plug on the Tacticam reveal for that 12, put in, 12 volt input is a little bit different size plug than what most of those other um, battery packs have. I don't believe Tacticam has their own uh, rechargeable battery uh, solar panel system for them yet. So in order to get one of those other brands of systems to work, you'd have to get an adapter. So I guess in summary, for the ones that I've tried so far and have experience with multiple different instances of each style, I'd say I like the probably the Exodus best overall. Um, best value seems to be the, the Tacticam, although there's a couple things I wish they would change about it. Um, and then the the spy points I've had really, I guess, hit or miss um, issues with the reliability with them. So hope that gives you guys some good information um, to be able to help inform your decision uh, from some of the experiences that I've had with those cameras so far. Hope this podcast overall was helpful. Give some ideas about, you know, things we do differently, things that we learned when we we're out on the North Dakota trip and things like that. So that'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.